Welcome to Unedited. It's our off-season mini-series where I share the raw tape of interviews I've previously done with well-known podcast hosts. These stories have been published at Under the Radar's magazine website. A lot of the conversation, as you might imagine, doesn't make it to the main story, but people are often really interested in what a veteran podcaster such as Roman Mars from 99% Invisible might have to say. Roman's like the OG. His voice is so iconic. Getting to interview him was a treat. The show needs no introduction. It's been around for a decade now. I actually got to speak to him because they were marking this milestone by releasing a book called The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. If you're a long-time fan of the podcast or are someone looking to start a podcast, here's an opportunity to sit in on our interview and hear Roman discuss some useful tips about podcasting. From how songs and sound design can be used to seduce listeners, or how, on Hey Yoon, one of its earliest and most memorable episodes, the story was edited more like an indie movie, and how to run a successful podcast network where someone like Rishikesh Herway from Song Exploder can thrive and go on to land a successful Netflix TV deal. If you stick around to the end, he discusses Trump Con Law, his other podcast, and its connection to Doomtree, a collective of Midwestern musicians and rappers. But my biggest takeaway from Roman, as someone who also makes a podcast, was what he said about always putting that one thing in there that just makes you laugh. It's something that I have since practiced, because as he knows only too well, this work can be hard and tedious, and sometimes you just deserve that little bit of fun. Hi. Can you hear Hi. me, Roman? Hi. I can. So how have you been in lockdown? Has it been like the emotional roller coaster for you, or have you managed to be on even keel? I've mostly been even keel. Like, I'm kind of constitutionally, like, well-suited to being locked in a house, honestly, um, my work is pretty solitary. Um, I I don't have a lot of like like need for a lot of extra contact. As long as I have a few core people in my life, I'm pretty good. But what really put me over the edge was the wildfires. Like I thought, you know, that being in a you know in a house was kind of hard. Like it did it it did it, it did do some of its own damage to me. Being in a house where you can't open the windows was just the worst that really put me on edge and so i in and you know i don't usually have like my internal emotional state is usually not all that dictated by the external like at all but that really did it to me i felt trapped in a way that i never felt before yeah it was kind of crazy just looking outside from like for where i'm sitting and it would just be orange or you know and then just gray yeah, yeah. and it was just completely apocalyptic and we had a garden patch and it had a film of just dust ash, yeah. burnt ash and it was you know on tomatoes and it was just really disturbing that was tough yeah yeah i've got the book it's made for a very interesting read i also had it on a i think a link for a while and i was just reading it i can't remember it was in adobe or something but it was really clunky to turn a page 
mm-hmm. on it on the on the screen. And eventually, I asked uh, your publicist. I said, "Can I have another link or a copy to the book or some other way of reading it?" Because you know, it's sort of like counterintuitive of what the book is about. <laughs> like I can't read it. So um, she sent it to me and it was a different reading experience yeah, I mean, I mean. for sure. But um, since then I've realized that so many of the stories have just sort of like lived in me that I've forgotten that I read it earlier on as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm walking around and I'm just like, the story just pops into my head and I just think, oh yeah, this is a story that I know. I saw one of your YouTube event that you did with Greenlight. Uh, the bookstore. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I know those stories <laughs> because mm-hmm. I've been reading this book. It's 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 amazing how it just becomes a part of, oh, your every day, you start to see things. And so I read um, the transcript of your recent NPR interview with Ari Shapiro. And you said that you're really not an optimistic person by nature, but doing <laughs> 99% Invisible has made you more optimistic, knowing that, you know, so much work goes into designing our world and also when we humans get it right it is invisible right the whole concept of your show um but is there a particular story or two that really stood out as the sort of shiny example um in this book of something that made me optimistic yeah i mean i i often go back to the story of curb cuts because those are the little ramps that sort of make it so that uh, a person in a wheelchair can go from the street level to the sidewalk level. And, you know, those were, um, before they were widespread, uh, there was a group called the the Rolling Quads that started in Berkeley. And they would go out and take a sledgehammer to the to the edges and then cement and, and make their own ramps. And they didn't do this a ton. Like, this wasn't, like, about accessibility. It was about making a statement. And... That statement was so powerful that, um, you know, a few decades later, I mean, it took a while, but it's directly related to the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act in 1991, and making spaces more accessible in cities. And um, and also made life better for everyone else in, in the process too, everyone with a stroller, everyone with any type of different mobility um, which is going to be everyone. Let's be very, very clear about the fact that uh, everyone is on track to have different mobility than they have right now. And so we should make the world for everyone in, in, a, in a good way and serve people who, uh, who have very different needs than ours. But um, I think when I think of that, I think of the change. I think of the, the statement of the built environment. I think the receptivity of, of powers that be. I mean, you, you listen to this is George Herbert Walker Bush who signed that act. You listen to his statement and you go, wow, I forgot that Republicans could not be ghouls, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, and there's like, there's just something about that, that, you know, like, you know, like that, you know, helps me out. You know what I mean? That, that progress can be made when it's just, when it's not, when it's the right person, you know? So, yeah, um, for me, I know there's like a the whole kind of top-down design and the kind of bottom-up interventionist that's discussed in this book a little bit. But for me, it was the story of the Buddha. Yeah. I was so moved reading it and was quite unexpected that I started to tear up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a weird one for me because that's usually the response that I have as a music writer when I hear a turn of phrase, you know, mixed with a melody and inexplicably it moves me to tears but it's never never reading 
a book that's meant to be like a field guide for a design podcast, you know? So, I mean, what do you have to say for yourself? It, you know, how did you do that? <laughs> well, I mean, the story is just moving. I mean, that was reported by, by a podcast called Criminal, which is part of the Radiotopia group. And we, we, we played that, that episode on our show. And then we, we sort of retold the story for the book. And there's just something about it where you, you know, there was this space that no one owned, you know, this little, in this little corner, little triangle, and it and it sort of collected debris and it collected people's bad behavior and it and and somebody just decided I'm going to put a Buddha here and you know not call the cops, not do all this sort of stuff, but intervene by inspiring people that this place is cared for in some way, and then people just came in droves to like build temples and monuments around it and other Buddhas and like a little you know, like shack around the Buddha, you know, like, and then burn incense and, and, um, and then they spread in that area of Oakland, you know, there's other ones now. And, um, and, and yeah, it's like, it's one of those things that you go like, okay, like this is really a little bit more of what we are, you know, like I, I do think that in general, like we can get a little bit poisoned by, by fiction because fiction requires conflict. And when it turns, when it comes down to it for the most part, when it comes to crisis, people do pretty well, you know, cities are quite safe, you know, and there's a bunch of people crammed in together and they do look out for each other. And you just need like, just like there's often instigating incidents when it comes to like things breaking down, there can be instigating incidents to people coming together too. And the Buddha was just one of them, you know, like, and there was a sense, you know, that the guy put it out, he was not a Buddhist. He just thought that it was like a good, like neutral statement of like, of like thoughtfulness, you know, but then the people, you know, but the people really grabbed onto it were, you know, a lot of Vietnamese immigrants who were just like, I miss my Buddha from, you know, where I'm from and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to treat this one like a temple. And so, um, it, you know, things can, things don't have to mean the same thing to all people for it to have meaning. And, and I think that one of the things that we, the worldview of the store of the show and the worldview of the book is, um, is understanding a little bit of people's intention. And even if your use is different or your care about is different, or if like you think that, you know, like inflatable tube men that flop around at car dealerships are ugly and tacky, knowing that someone else who invented them used them as a, he was a puppeteer and he, 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 he was, he developed them for the Olympic games and the dancing represented his, home of Trinidad and Tobago, the way that the people move and gyrate to music. And he was trying to create that there, you know, all of a sudden infusing, you know, like knowing that intent. And when you see it, all of a sudden this tacky thing that the whole city of Houston banned because they thought they were so hideous, you see it and you go, Oh, I can kind of see that now. And that makes it kind of delightful. And, um, and that's what it does to me. That, I mean, that's what the show, you know, kind of like, um, has helped me do is, 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 is help me see some of the intent and notice some of the things that I don't notice because they're done well, which is the first rule, you know, and then notice some of the things that I, at first I have like a kind of a prejudice or, or, or visceral reaction to like a brutal, a big brutalist concrete building or, or a, a dancing tube man or whatever. And then you hear the history of all the stuff and why a person came to this and you go, oh, I, I see it. You know, like people aren't dumb. You know, people don't invent things just to be irritating. They, they're inventing things to solve problems, you know. So it's good to recognize that. And it does sort of change your mind about certain things. 
it's also the way that you tell these stories, right? Because um, you really, one thing is the intention of this, these stories, um, you know, how you tell them. Um, it's also because it's like sometimes you think of um, design and like brutalist buildings. Um, it seems like such a dry and boring subject, right? <laughs> it's like, oh my God, shoot me now, you know? But when you come from such a, emotional human place of curiosity it really strikes like a really special balance and like from the podcast I have to say sometimes when I listen to a podcast I'm just like it's so meandering Mm -hmm. waiting for the story to kind of land that sometimes I lose interest but of course when it meanders well and it lands well it's like whoa that made so much sense. And, and like the payback is so good, right? Just like, it's like a drug. You want to go back and we want to listen to the next story. Not all podcasts manage to do it. Do mm-hmm. that. I think Hey Yoon was one of the episodes for me as one of the first episodes of, um, of 99% that I listened to. I was like, okay, I can get behind this. <laughs> wow. That's an old one. Yeah. That's Alex Goldman from Reply All before he was on Reply All. I think that was even before he was on, um, TLDR, like the little offshoot from on a, on the media that started that one. Yeah, that was a good one for us, for me too. It was like a, I, I was worried about that one because I was I was a little worried that the meanderingness of that one, well, people wouldn't quite get the intent of what we're trying to do, and um, and a meditation on who owns a space is a is a is not like a barn burner in terms of like the subject for a for a podcast but um but I, I i agree i that one was really did strike people early on as as being a one that was particularly special and in in sim greenspan who was working on the show at the time like he really like he really um edited it like um like an indie movie it had like a real indie movie soundtrack it had that feeling of like you're in a a wes anderson or a richard linkletter movie of you know of it had like voice actors and stuff in it you know and it had it had a real sense of of place and wonder. And I thought they did it. I thought they did a good, I mean, it, it, I thought that was a really fun one too. I, I liked that one. Yeah. Um, this wasn't my next question, but um, since you mentioned um, the soundtrack as such, it's like, what's your relationship with music and the way you tell your stories? Have you always had, because there, there, because like I do a music podcast and, and, you know, and it's not easy to, mm-hmm. um, to um, have that kind of, musicality so that it's not taking away from the story that's being told. So what's your relationship with that? And when, when do you sort of have that inkling that you like to do that? Oh, I mean, music is essential to the show as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I think the thing I fell in love with the most when it came to radio storytelling was talking over music. I think it's, it feels so good and like it calms you down and it gets your meter right. Like it trained me to talk, to have, something because when you have that bed of something you don't have that nervousness that i need to fill this space like i desperately need to chatter to fill this space like the music does it for you and then you're allowed to kind of like um have a deliberate pace and bring people in because i know the show is about boring things like that's the whole point of the show is that it's about everyday things and finding wonder in them and i know that i have to seduce you to get you to care like that's part of the process and so everything about the sound design is to that end. So 
it's mic'd so that I sound like I'm a voice in your head versus an announcer or in front of a crowd. Like it's, it's meant to sound like literally it's coming from your brain. Um, the music, I call it tink tink. Um, it's like, it, it gives you this bed to explain things, you know, like where you, it, where wonder is part of the, of the, of the soundtrack. And, um, it's like nice to talk over and like there are whole there there's whole episodes of the show or less definitely in the past um where you know the reason i got started was because i found a piece of music and i just wanted to talk over it <laughs> like i just thought it would work and so so around episode 200 um Sean Rial who's our composer uh came on and then and then she was like uh, kind of on and off, like I, I would pay her occasionally. And then, and then she became a staff member. And I think, I don't know of any other shows that have a dedicated full-time composer on staff. That's how important music is to us. And that's how much Sean is involved in making the soundtrack. And like, if there's an, every type of edit, um, Sean is in the edit, like, like going over the content, um, to write music and to, and to, and to present music to us to use um, and it's just like, it's a whole nother voice of the show. And we, we, we just couldn't do it without it. Like it, it's a, it would be no fun, you know, but B it just, it, the emotional weight that that carries and the way that it kind of allows you to have chapter breaks and all the stuff that we're doing when we think about the sound design, it really revolves around the music more than anything, especially if we're doing a show that's kind of based on ideas versus being, you know, something like a scene happening in a moment. So you can have ambient tape, you know, when you're in a thing, but right now, especially now, you know, we're all in our separate houses and stuff and you need music to help sort of create like a unified feel. And, um, and the music of, uh, 99PI is like, oh, it gives me such joy. Like, I love it. We're putting out a record of Sean's music, actually, like a seven, a seven inch record in, in, in November. And I'm like, I'm like so stoked, you know, it's like, I'm so excited about it. I've always like, like, you know, the Radiotopia is like my little punk rock indie label, you know, like I've always wanted that. I never was able to kind of get, get to things. Yeah, exactly. Would get myself together to make. And so finally putting out a seven inch, uh, um, of Sean's music is, is uh, such a delight to me. Yeah. So when you have said that it's a bit of, do you, when you track, do you track with the music under? I don't. I mean, I used to, I used to do that more. When I used to try stuff out, I would play. So like right now uh, to do this, I'm talking to you with a set of headphones that goes to my computer and a set of headphones that goes to my monitor, you know? And so I used to, I used to com- you put the show together with two headphones. So one with the music that I would try out while I talked and stuff like that. Nowadays, like it, like somebody, a someone else is putting it together. Like I have a whole team of people who do this sort of stuff for me. And the other, and the other part is, um, is it is is like, um, we have somebody like because someone can be a dedicated composer. Like she writes to to the voice, you know, almost. And so, and so it kind of happens the other the other direction. But, um, uh, but yeah, I used to do that all the time. Yeah. As, yeah, it's nice to be able to pick your brain. <laughs> <laughs> so. One of my other favorite stories from the book, there's a few, but um, I love the postal service mm-hmm. story. 
um, especially given everything that is um, you know, gone down with the with this administration and trying to like destroy the post office to suppress yeah. votes, it it's just struck me how much we take these um, institutions for granted, and they're like so rooted in the very idea, our way of life, and the very idea of democracy, even pre the constitution and all that, which I found mm-hmm. out from from reading that. <laughs> uh, so. Am I right in thinking, do a lot of your stories come via books? Yeah, so that one's almost like cribbed entirely from one book that we credit and talk about in the in the in the chapter. But it you know, um you know, we we do um I would say not a ton of them, but we, we tend to have a, a, a two different major flavors of the of the show. Uh one is a, a reported piece that we talk to like five or six people and a reporter on staff does the interviews and we edit it together and put it all together. And the other is kind of a, a more uh, ideas-related book interview type thing where it's like one person, one interview. I read a book. I work with a producer. We think of some good things to ask. And it's about the built world and it, it relates to our subject. But it's one person who's really thought about this and put together like a thesis. And it's just a smart person that I would enjoy talking to. So, you know, Winifred Gallagher, who who wrote the How the Post Office Created America, was one of those. And we talked to, you know, recently, you know, people, uh, you know, it, we, you'll see book interviews all the time. And a lot of times, like as a listener, um, people don't necessarily notice the difference because they just kind of notice like I'm being brought, brought on a story, you know, like they don't really think about the difference in, in, um, in production. Yeah. They just kind of like, they're like, Oh, I like all this information that's being fed to my brain. Um, and it's always surprising when people say to me like, Oh, my favorite episode is this. And it's one that like, I read a book and we spent about a week putting it together and then it comes out except for, you know, besides the ones that take like, you know, two years to put together, you know, (laughs) like, and so, but people just like, they, they grab onto whatever information that kind of delights, you know, the pleasure centers of the brain and and you can't like fault them for that. They like your hard work should not matter, you know, like in terms of their perception of what it, how, what is valuable. But yeah, you know, like we often, um, talk to someone really smart and, and try to get their, you know, their voice on the show. And, um, and, uh, it's a, it's a good way to, it's a good way to just kind of like as a production, you know, like it's a good way to mix it up because, you know, ev- if every episode takes eight weeks to make, we would really be in trouble and most of them do. And so we need the occasional one where we talk to someone smart and they've done a lot of the thinking for us, you know? Yeah, because uh, I think um, I did a transom traveling course, and Rob Rosenthal said that um, I think uh, who was it, Jet Abramov? That he he uses Wikipedia random article links to like find their stories, and so I was like, I wonder where you get all your stories. And then as I was flipping, so there's a lot of books. Yeah, we do a fair amount of books. I mean, I think that the the book also references a lot of books that we haven't done actual you know episodes about, but. Um, but yeah, it's usually newspaper articles, stuff online, I, not random Wikipedia. That is never, that's never been in my repertoire. But, um, but you know, we, we, you know, we're a group of, uh, of 13 people and we come up with all kinds of ideas all the time, you know, so, and they come from everywhere, you know, a lot from Twitter, a lot of suggestions from Twitter, honestly, that's a big one these days. So sometimes um, the design, no matter in the book and no matter how sort of haphazard it seems, um, really works, right? And there's a story there about LA Place itself, the yacht one, and then about those little, you know, stickers, yeah. those little placard type things that we see <clears throat> all over the place in LA. Um, so that really took me on um, 
a deep dive, a rabbit hole, because mm-hmm. then I was like, I went over, because I think I actually asked your publicist, like, oh, you know, we're a music magazine, you know, do you have like more music centered stories in here? And she gave me like a couple, and this was one of them. And um, so I looked up the band um, Yachts. LA played yeah. itself and I was like oh you know how cool was this album you know and do yeah. it and then I was like oh it was based on the Tom Anderson video essay yeah. um and I was like oh and it was about and then I went and found the video essay and started to watch it it's like almost three hours long so I mean yeah. you know um, I think like halfway into it but it was so interesting that uh, that essay and they were talking about like the villains and modernist homes and and it was just like it really, that small little thing now, next time I drive past one of these signs in downtown LA or wherever, I'm going to go, wow. I mean, that's, you just nailed the point of the show, honestly, <laughs> like like that and the book. I mean, it's like that the whole idea is you're about to see stories everywhere. And, and even that in and of itself, even if the stories are not, you know, uplifting stories necessarily. I mean, the, I happen to think those are pretty delightful in and of themselves, but but like, um, it just seeing stories like is fun. You know, these things are full of stories and full of other things and other thoughts. And the city is this weird, like momentary, you know, like glimpse of this hodgepodge of, you know, solutions that were designed, that were accidental, that are vestiges that are still in use, that are all put together. And they tell us so much about who we are. If you just pay attention to them you know that's the whole point that's what we that's what i that's what gets me excited about doing the show for 10 years cool um so when i lived in london i lived next door to um thomas hardy's house so they had one of those little blue plaques Mm -hmm. and um and and um, jude the obscure was like one of my favorite books in school but it took me leaving you know, going back to Australia and then living in America and then going back and going down the street on Trinity Road and seeing that plaque again to go, oh, I'd forgotten that. You know, it's like this plaque that was there. Was I even aware of it when I lived there? The plaque was there. You know, it's like because yeah. because you're living in London and these plaques are everywhere and, yeah. and each one is like more fantastical than the next one. Oh, this is John Lennon's house. This is, you know, and so it's just like if you become like almost desensitized to it. And so it made me wonder who who are these plaques for? Are they are they more for tourists? And then it just sort of made me think about all this thing a little bit deeper. And then given and then you point out in the book that you know markers in the West often ignore the perspective of Native Americans. And given it was just um Indigenous People's Day, taking over from Columbus this week, um, there was a lot of like, there's this moment of cultural reckoning with that question. And like, you know, whose land is this? And I was like, you know, what does it take for for there to be plug, brown plugs all over US cities saying this is the land of, you know, which tribe or which people were here here before colonizers came? So yeah. I was like, Will someone do that? I mean, very possibly. I mean, I do think that that sort of stuff is changing. And one of the things you do recognize if you sort of look at monuments or plaques at all is that they are not so much the story of the th- of the time period that they're depicting. They're the story of the time period that they were erected. And so it's like what we value at that moment, what we see in the past and what we bring forward to present 
um, it says it so much about us. Like most of the Confederate monuments in the South were erected in the 1920s, not in the during, or right after the Civil War. You know, they were erected at a time period where, you know, a, you know, a group was trying to, you know, change their identity and 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 terrorize black people. You know, still with the with the idea that this you know stuff may have changed, but they haven't changed this much, and you should recognize this. You know, um, and so. You know, plaques and monuments are, uh, they're, you know, they're endlessly fascinating to me. I don't think you should beat yourself up for not noticing it. The whole human brain is designed to um, just discard, you know, 99% of information because um, you see it every day and you're only supposed to notice change because occasionally there's a lion outside and you have to run from it. Like that's what your brain is designed to do. So, um, so it's okay to not notice it. But the idea is that if you just turn yourself onto it and do notice it, there's there's real rewards there, and so when um, when when I do, I notice some things, and and sometimes you know it is delightful, and it's like John Lennon's house, and I like then I'll think about John Lennon's music, and I'll think, well, that's great that he lived there, you know, that's you know it's quaint and homey, and anyone can come from this place and do something, you know, as remarkable as that. But the other part of it is recognizing that, um, you know, the values that we embed in the in the written layer of the built environment are um are usually complicated and they're usually written by people that are not necessarily thinking about all the people of the world or all the people of a place and so it's worth interrogating those too but you can't really interrogate them until you read the first layer of it you know like you have to engage with the first layer and, and those could be falsehoods and those could be uh exaggerations and they're definitely simplifications um and the fun part is researching them further and and finding out how complex everything is and i do think that we're in for a period of time where people put up monuments with the values of today and talk about, you know, like all the black people who made these, you know, these things and these movements that were unheralded and, and written out of history. And, you know, like the places in the West, you know, like we, we, we think about them, you know, like the, the monument that sort of gives me the most conflict in this world is the monument of the national park. You know, like these are things I love and cherish. And I think they're a huge part of what makes the United States great. You know, these are the national parks were these wedges that were used to separate native people from their land. You know, like this virtue of this national park was a way of stealing that made us feel good about ourselves. Um, and so these things are complicated and they're worth wrestling with. And the story is interesting and I don't know what you do with it. I don't know what you take from it. I don't know, you know, how you expand from there, but you have to know it. You know, like that's the bare minimum. You know, you have to know it. Yeah. I I was, um, went on the Blues Highway with uh, the kids and my husband because he re- was really interested in going on the Blues Highway and I was like, nah, I'm not that interested. But, you know, <laughs> over the years being here in uh, this particular moment, we lived in San Francisco for three and a half years and, you know, and, and I was just sort of like becoming so aware of so many things that I never understood before. I was just never aware of because I, I live, I come from Singapore originally. Um, and so, so we went on the Blues Highway and it was amazing. Um, you know, we started, got really apt at like just driving past things and seeing those signs. And, and I think um, the Blues, Mississippi Blues Commission puts up these signs everywhere and, and never go on a road trip with your family in the winter because it mm. takes you a long time to get two boys into the car at any mm. decent time. And by the time you rock up anywhere, it's four o'clock and dark. 
and you can't see anything. <laughs> so it was raining. We were in Clarksdale and, and everything was closed and it was like New Year's Eve. Um, and, um, and we saw this plaque in the rain and we we're like, that's something interesting. That has something interesting. And we stopped the car <laughs> and we went out and it was just outside of the hotel that Bessie Smith, the Riverside hotel where Bessie Smith died Mm -hmm. and it it was a hospital at one time and you know and so it was just like it's like so important to have that because it was just on the street no you know you would have missed it but because we became really apt at recognizing these plaques we were like oh you know that's a sign that's definitely something monumental we should stop and read the sign so even though it was dark and it was in the rain we came out read the sign and then we did what you said. We Googled the rest of it and went like, whoa, that's interesting yeah. how she couldn't go into any other hospital at the time, into a white hospital and, you know, eventually died. Um, and then I saw just recently on YouTube, somebody had put up a little story. It almost sounded like a, a school kid doing a report mm-hmm. and they had missed a few things and people in the comment section were giving her a bit of a hard time. But it was like they were saying, you know, you should put the whole truth there that, it was because she was black. She wasn't taken to the white hospital and that's why she died. And it just kind of went back and forth. Different people saying, I'm from Clarksdale. This is really what happened. And other people saying, no, that's not what happened. Mm. You know, so it was yeah. just like fascinating. Um, and I think, yeah, plaques. So now I've got this thing about plaques and those little things <laughs> on, the, on the street. Like I took a picture of it and almost like at Radiotopia because I was walking on the green belt yesterday with a dog and I was like, what is this purple thing that's just in the middle of all the dirt? You know, what's under here? Is it water? You know, what is this? <laughs> and, you know, and I've lived here for four and a half years and I've never questioned them or never even seen them. So. Oh, oh you're very welcome. Yeah, we, we, we definitely make road trips and walking trips much longer because if you stop and read plaques and notice these things um it, it's um it makes your day longer but i think it makes it more delightful too there's there's definitely a place like i sometimes say like if you're visiting um boston in the winter time you could die of exposure if you read every plaque so just like don't do that but um you know be be uh you know pace yourself but otherwise like if you see something cool on the you know side of the highway in mississippi like yeah definitely pull over that's like that's that's a dream yeah um so and the other thing that i found really interesting in the book is the mosquito because i have teenagers um (laughs) and that kind of you know social control through design um like like i said i lived in singapore i mean i I was born in singapore and raised there so you know that's all about (laughs) that very thing social control Yeah, yeah and so and with the mosquito, it was such a fascinating um, little story in there. And I actually went on Wikipedia and looked it up. And there was a little uh, a little window there that you could listen to the sound. And I actually tried to hear and I didn't hear it. And then I got my <laughs> 13-year-old. Can hear it? They could hear it? Yeah, yes. it works. And then I got yeah. my husband to hear and my 13-year-old was standing there. And my husband was like, no. And my 13-year-old was like, I can hear it from here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's an amazing thing. I mean, like, you know, we talk a lot about hostile design and different ways of social control using design. And the mosquito, you know, putting out a frequency that only kids can hear is is a really, like, salient example of the type of thing that you can do when you're being, you know, particularly devious, you know. Um, and, And you can see why somebody was like, this is 
the right kind of strangely humane or something like, you know, like it was the right type of discrimination, you know, because everyone can, you know, everyone can like dismiss young people, you know, like in public spaces, it's like super common to go, you know, to like only three kids at a time and, you know, all this sort of thing that they, people do, you know? And so, you, you know, but, but like when you have these non-negotiable and even like painful experiences, you know, for, for, um, to try to discriminate against a, a class of people, like, that's no good. You know, like we, you know, we need to like have some ability to negotiate those with human interactions, um, and not do them with, um, design solutions that we, that we can't negotiate with. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a reason for, you know, your 13 year old son to be in a store sometimes, you know, like, you know, like, and, and shouldn't have to, and, you know, like endure pain or, or irritation to, to do it. But I, you know, I think the ones that are, the, the ones that are sort of like devious and like you, most people can't hear is like, that's a real problem. Like I have a little bit more like a uh, uh, sympathy for like playing classical music or something. So it's not cool to stand outside, you know, like, like that. It just is sort of like, it's like, I don't want to be here because this, um, cause the Bach makes me, you know, like feel dumb, you know, like annoyed, but so the, those, I can tolerate some on the spectrum of some of this stuff. It makes some sense. There's a, even there's like, in some of the council estates, they put up a uh, pink lighting, um, cause they thought that the, the light would make blemishes on your skin look bad. Like people look sickly and teenagers who are extremely, you know, you know, occupied with the idea of the way they look, you know, would avoid these areas with pink light. Um, and, uh, I thought that one was pretty good. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was pretty funny. I don't think it's going to, I don't think it works. I think that's probably why I think it's funny is because I think it's probably, you know, like it's just sort of like a, an idea, like a hypothesis that is not very, um, well-grounded. Well, now yeah. it'll be, people will be like, oh, let's take a picture. Cause it's like a great filter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that pink light. <laughs> um, uh, the other thing about the book was it has a lot of personality. So, um, like at the end of the Buster Rhymes Island in Massachusetts, Joey. It sort of ends with a woo-ha. <laughs> I remember researching it and, and I put two exclamation points because that's how the song is titled. And uh, the editor came back and cut one of the exclamation points. And I said, no, sorry, this has to go. This is like the way it is. Um, yeah, we, you know, like it's, it's, you know, to do those things. I mean, you, you have to do those things like as a writer. I mean, like Kirk Holstead and I like did the book together, like, for real like he wrote you know huge sections of it we worked every word on it we we went over together and um the um the thing that sort of get, keeps you from going insane when you write like a pretty dense 400 page book uh, about uh, all these different things is um the things that just make you laugh you know what i mean so like in that essay you know like in particular like i had this one part where i i think i, I had written like you know, that the, the guy who was naming Buster Rhymes Island was a fan of, of canoeing and, uh, intricate high speed rapping or something like this. And, and, and it was just sort of like, it was like, I, I needed to, I, you just have to do those things to please you. And the, and the show is full of this too. I always say that when you make an episode of a thing that you're doing or do a documentary, like just put one thing in that just makes you laugh, that mucks, that makes you feel good because, um, it's such hard work to hone something so that it's good for people that you just need these things so that you get delighted by your own work. Cause you're always your first audience. And so, 
so yeah putting woo-ha at the end of that was like it was definitely a touch that I like I required like for myself I don't know if anyone else required it, it seemed like you might well, I liked it, it. <laughs> but, but um but I but I definitely needed it and the other thing I noticed was on the back of the little book book jacket that kind of seals it can you call it a book jacket yeah it's, it's called a belly band technically yeah yeah uh, okay so it was like on, on, above the barcode it says thirty dollars presumably for the u.s and then higher in canada higher in canada that's the thing i didn't put that on there that's just the thing that apparently it's it's so volatile that they can't actually tell you the canadian price anymore um but one of the things i love about the belly band is it has its own kind of secrets like it the uh the inside is a guide to the cover and so we wanted this um and so if you look at you know the the outside um the outside spine says the the hidden world of everyday design, and the other one says the the reverse side inside says the the guide to the to the cover, and it, and it has like little figure markings and everything like this. And this that was always part of the um, the idea behind the book is that it would have these sort of moments of delight and design built into it. So that I was really like it was really important to me that the book have a reason to exist and not just be some kind of like you know, um, basic translation of the radio show or podcast. Like it, it really just couldn't be that it had to be, it's it had to exist on its own for its own reasons. And those things, um, the way it's written, um, the way that the package is conceived, like, I'm so glad you got a physical copy of the book instead of the, um, the digital copy, like the digital copy will give you the information, but it will not give you like the feeling of it that we were trying to convey. And, uh, and and that's what I really lo- loved about it. Like I, you know, when you work on a project and it's sort of, um, it's painful to work on a book, like no one will tell you like it's super fun. Um, but, but when I see it, it's like, I'm looking at one at the other end of the table and it's like, oh yeah, I remember why I did this. Cause it, look, that's the, what I did it. Like the, the words on a page just, they don't feel like much of as much of any, you know, anything like you, it's that total package. That is the thing that is really fun to create, you know? Um, the New York Times said something like, I think overall it was a good review, but I think they said something like uh, um, the 99% invisible city is filled with hundreds of such fascinating tidbits, often hard to find in what could have been a better organized book. <laughs> so. I think that's it. It's, it's a, like, I love that review. Like for the most part, it was a pretty ecstatic and great review. It has great little pull quotes. But the two things that they said, that he said that I disagreed with, first of all, I think it's extremely well organized personally like it has these arcs and stuff that has arcs inside of arcs that you probably don't even notice and i know that they're there and the reason why anyone can remember any of it is because kurt in particular spent so much time making sure that all these things flowed together in a way that made sense but the second thing they said is that there should be photographs in it which is a patently insane point of view like i have i mean it's like like that's a great type of criticism because I can immediately dismiss it as somebody who has not thought through this problem because the whole idea is to create this beautiful object of looking at these things in kind of an abstract way. You can look at them in person, you know, like, but like it, there would be no visual continuity and beauty in this book if it was full of photographs. And trust me, I've gotten every type of design book that has existed in the past 50 years. And the ones that are full of photographs are usually not very good. Like I don't like them as much. And I never had a notion that the, that the book would be full of photographs ever. Like I, I can't even conceive of it as a, as a valid idea. Now he can certainly have that opinion and I have no problem like that, that a New York times review was 
great and it sold a ton of books and I was super happy with it and I would send him flowers and like he totally is welcome in his opinion. It's just that that I just so fundamentally disagree with it that it didn't like land on me as a thing that I would care about. If they said something like that I was sensitive about, I would <laughs> or that I didn't make a choice about and just did poorly, I would feel like um, you know, I feel more sensitive to it. But that was one that I was just like, if that's the criticism, like I'm I feel great, you know. So yeah, I was super happy with that review. Yeah. Um so there's some to just move on a little bit. Um there's there's something very kind of necessary in the business of podcasting right now. You know, um it's like we have we need different vectors as such, you know, we've and Radiotopia is is such a fantastic independent network for so many reasons. And I, and I love the kind of DIY spirit that you have to it and like finding your own solutions. It's like, it's all the stuff as in somebody who works independently loves and like, mm-hmm. you know, looks onto as like, wow, there is a way this can be done. Um, so, and like the fact that something like Song Exploder is now a Netflix TV show, is mm-hmm. it's kind of amazing. Like, you know, it, I think it, in some ways it got there earlier, even though there have been other things that have translated. I think this is like the best idea of what, of how a podcast has, has gone from in your ears to on TV because mm-hmm. the, the, the way the story unfolds is very much true to it, but it's got something set, something different in the medium that it's transferred into. Um, so kind of what lessons have you learned from like design right? The way we design and all the stories that you've done that have helped you be more sort of effective as the head of this like podcasting network. I mean, the guiding principle of the podcasting network of Radiotopia was that I'm not the boss, that we're just a group that share resources and Julie Shapiro is executive director and she runs it and makes sure you know things happen for everybody and gets and does all these things better than we can do on our own and then all the things that we can do better on our own we do we take them on and we own our work and we and so you know the the thing that makes song splitter work is Rishi's preternatural talent for making compelling work about music and i have nothing to do with it you know like all i did was like once tell him like you should join radiotopia <laughs> I, I actually implored him i was like you should this is the discord podcast so you should and he, and he was like an indie music person and he was just like oh yeah I, go, I, I get it i get it now and so he did and you know like i can take no credit for its existence and its greatness other than the fact that I'm, I, I, I know how to stand out of its way so that it can be what it is. And so hopefully, you know, I promoted it. I, you know, put it on my show a lot. Like, um, I want to do like a little piece about trans, like for, for 99% invisible about song exploder translated to the screen, like, because I'm interested in that as a, as an idea, as a design idea. And so, you know, like, so I'll do everything I can to help Rishi and, and like make sure that his stuff happens. But I mean, one of the things that is like, a, it's kind of the, the absent, it's like, it's not doing harm is, is an important part of, of running a thing. And, um, and if, 
you know, he had the complete ownership and ability and didn't require anyone's permission to sell it to Netflix and do this great thing and reach more people and create a new form of art that I have fuck all to do with. I have nothing to do with it. Like an only can claim it in the sense that I think I created a fair and just system so that people can be great on their own and, and, um, don't have to ask permission. That's all I wanted for, for everybody. And so like, it's the greatness of song exploder is, is Rishi's and, um, and the only thing that I can take credit for is that maybe I enticed him into a place where he could do the best thing he could do on his own. Um, whereas maybe else he would have been stymied by somebody going, well, how much time are you going to spend on a Netflix show? And do we get enough credit on it? And do we, you know, like how much am I going to get paid for it? And all that sort of stuff would have slowed down the process from creating this thing that was really, really beautiful. And so, um, so yeah, that's the ethic of the, of Radiotopia and, and why it works um, for some people. It doesn't work for everybody, you know, cause it, cause we don't, you know, like it isn't like a full-time job that we can give you and make things easier for you. Like it, it's, it's a harder path, but I, I think it's, it's a harder path, but I think it's a good one for, um, for a lot of people. Um, you said that the pod, that podcasting is the sort of ideal multitasking medium, right? Especially in this like attention economy. I, I also love the fact that I can put a podcast on and do the dishes. So why kind of now limit yourself with the book? What was like at the, at the, at the root of why you wanted to do the book and will there be more? Well, the book, maybe i mean i pitched it as a series even though the publisher was like well let's just make one <laughs> see if it's any good um but i originally pitched it as like a guide to the city a guide to roads and highways a guide to you know other stuff like i had i had lots of ideas of this um the reason for a book is because is because i love design so much so so a, a podcast is great for all those things it's the perfect multitasking medium it's sort of future proof in this way because there's one thing i can guarantee about the future of of people consuming content is they will be distracted <laughs> and doing multiple things at once and so i make a thing where you do not have to look and you do not have to stop what you're doing and that's a fantastic thing i think that's a nice place to be the problem with it is is that is the audio presentation is a very locked and and rigid format. You have to start it when I tell you to start it. It stops when I tell you to stop. I guide you along the way and you follow along. The only thing you can probably control um, uh, is uh, the speed in which I am telling you these things now on, on podcast apps. But still, you have to go through the whole thing. Like if you wanted to hear the story of Curb Cuts, you have to you know just take aside 30 minutes and listen to that episode and... Um, and it's like, you know, it's just one of those things that all that information and that point of view is like locked up in this linear format that um, it's kind of hard to reference. It's kind of hard to like, if you saw a thing like that traffic light, I remember Roman said something about a traffic light. Okay, what episode and did they name it something clever or did they just name it traffic lights or whatever? It's like harder to find. And and I wanted to sort of break apart that all that stuff and add a bunch of new stuff and give you this way to negotiate the information and stories on your own, like a desire path. Like, like you can find your way through this book in a way that you can't in a piece of audio documentary. Like an audio documentary is one way. It is designed from the top down. There is no negotiating with it. And so I kind of wanted to practice what I preached and created like a, 
a path for for you to come to this all these stories and sort of make them your own you know you can flip through you can take bits of it you can read a paragraph here a paragraph there you can be guided by the um the you know the ideas that resonate with you and by the pictures you know whatever it is um and so that's what made sense to me like it made sense to me as an object at this point in time to offer something that was not so rigid as audio as much as i think audio is the you know most superior form of human communication um I, I really thought it was like, it was like time for this thing to exist. You know, it is not a merchandising product. It is way too much work to just be like about cash grabbing, you know, like it really is about serving the material. And there's a certain point where the material gets so unwieldy at, at 417 episodes, you know, the material is so unwieldy that it's not something that people can take in in any way um, linearly, you know? So it's interesting because um, it could be, the book could have been a guide to the podcast episodes almost like you could then say, Oh, this story and then refer to podcast episode, whatever to find out more, but it's not that. Yeah. So it's like, it's almost like a standalone. Like I didn't even going through it because I haven't been through 10 years worth of um, 99% invisible podcast episodes, obviously. So like when I was reading this, I had no clue what was, a podcast already and what was new i, I yeah. was just like it, it you know and you it shouldn't. wasn't important to me yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not it's designed so that you don't i mean so there's a there's a fair stuff amount of stuff that had some kind of precedent but nothing is a direct translation of the thing like every part of it was gone over and fact checked again and rewritten and so they it really did inspire it but um in the worldview and the things that you know we created over the 10 years sort of like um laid the foundation for what the book is but the book is, it's, you know, it's, it's its own thing. It sort of started from scratch as, as its own thing. And so, how long did it take you to put it together, to write it? Well, we only just like about a year and a half, I'd say. But it was mainly because, you know, even though, you know, everything's sort of written from scratch, there's still 10 years of like research and talking to people and stuff and, and, and articles on the website that Kurt has done that, um, a lot of that part of writing a book is that period of time, you know, like of doing all that stuff. And we, we've just become experts of the material and done the research and had the, you know, all that stuff taken care of. And so the, the act of writing it is a little bit more like, okay, so we know we have all these stories. How do we organize them? How do we think through them? What do we want to include? What is the type of thing that goes to a city guide, which doesn't you know apply to other things? You know, um, you know, there's tons of episodes. The show is a very, has a very, broad view of what design is um you know like we have a whole episode devoted to you know deciding who wrote who let the dogs out for example <laughs> you know <laughs> thanks you know that doesn't belong in this book you know it's very much 99 pi but it doesn't belong in this book so we had you know we had to determine which goes in and which goes out and then decide all the stuff we want to add you know to make it more fit this this vision we have of this guy to the city and so that took a ton of time. And then the writing just took a ton of time and the editing took a ton of time. I mean, like in, you know, it's just, it's, it took a ton of time. It's really rough. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I think on my last two or three questions, if you're okay for time, um, let's see. So can you tell, tell me a little bit about the relationship you have with discord records 
and how it sort of affected the way you wanted to run Radiotopia. Yeah, so I found Discord Records when I was 15 or something, you know. Um, um, I just loved punk rock and I loved, but what I, what was missing for me, like I was not like a lover of nihilistic punk rock. I was really in love with the sort of like emotional core of caring about the world so much that you're going to scream about it, not, you know, not hating the world so much that you scream about it. And so, um, and there was something about the nature of record labels um, being this like their own entity, this like curatorial body that you trusted. And so whatever came out on Discord Records, I bought. There was no, there was, I didn't read a review to find out. I didn't, like there was nothing about it except for their imprimatur was enough to make me do it. And some I like more than others and some I, um, you know, just love is the greatest thing in, in the world. And so, um, and then there was a whole, the, the scene of it in terms of like, um, the contracts are extremely simple or they, I mean, they don't really have contracts. They're just like a, there's like a, basically a deal that everyone knows, you know, like you get $5 for this, for CD, you get, you know, whatever. And, and it was just, and we'll put out one record at a time and there's no like signing someone to a thing and, but making them beholden to it and all that sort of stuff like appealed to my interest in, in, in retaining ownership and, and being part of something that was important that had its own identity, but also, um, had some individuality and also the nature of the art itself. Like they seem to be, um, there were types of record labels that I love, you know, like, uh, like I'm, I now live in Berkeley, California. Um, I grew up also on lookout records. I thought those were great, but there was a different flavor to look at. Like lookout records is all about comfort. It's all about this pop punk that, you know, like it, it makes you happy. It fulfills your needs. There's a few things that like neuroses or something like that, that, that challenge you. But for the most part, it's, it's there for comfort. Discord always challenged me. Like every new Fugazi record was one I hated. <laughs> like I, I was like, I don't like this one as much. And then I listened to it for a while and I was like, no, never mind. This is the greatest one that they've ever done. And, and, and to have a, a band and have a, the ethic of a scene being that, we're always going to move forward and we're always going to push you and it, we're never going to really comfort you. Um, or there's, there's a, some amount of comfort. I mean, there's comfort and just like, but, but it's that right balance. Like art is always, always about a balance of like, of comfort and challenge. And I always thought that discord like hit that right note for me. In fact, I think it was Chad Clark from, um, smart one crazy and beauty pill who told me that good art is a balance between comfort and challenge. So like everything I think and everything I say it is often related to um, how I, how this how much this music impacted me, like the ethic of of presenting work and cataloging work, and you know making it, you know, like the thing that that people don't often get about independent artists is not that they're just like fuck it all anti corporate people, is that they're extremely good business people. That's I mean they 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 do the math on the gas and they buy the van and they do the bookings. And this is all commendable stuff that is often um, dismissed as the boring stuff. And I think it's all fascinating. Like the enterprise of putting out a creative product and producing it. I'm interested in every part of it and independent music embraced all that stuff. And yeah, I think the one aspect of independence where you don't have to have like a boss is like the, is the part of it that people really grab onto but what I love is the fact that they, they do everything doing people who do things make me happy. You know, like I just like being around people who do things. And so 
I like when they solve the problems and I like, I'm just inspired by this. Um, and so, so discord had, had this profound effect on me. Like, I, I don't even know what type of person I would be without it. And, um, and it, and it really made, you know, me think about everything in terms of how I was going to create this label with PRX and, and what it was going to be like. And the main thing was just to like, with, like I said, it's just to get out of the way, just let people do their work. You know, that's the best thing. I mean, like I could have created a company where I owned them and signed them and stuff like this. This, this is what like many, many, many people advised me to do this. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't want that. I don't want that. You know, sometimes I, you know, when that, when people get bought for $200 million, I think, well, why didn't I do that? I mean, that would probably would have made some sense, but like, um, but, uh, you know, maybe there's good I could have done that way. And it's possible that there's good that could be done that way. Don't get me wrong. It just wasn't, that wasn't my thing. Like it wasn't what I was interested in. I just wanted to be around people. Like I wanted to put on a show where, uh, Fugazi headlined and Jawbox and smart one crazy played. And then like, and then there was a reunion of gray matter and they showed up and you know, like that, that's what I wanted. You know, like, um, I wanted, I wanted to create that show and that's what, Radiotopia really was. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, with with Under the Radar, when I was re- just kind of reading about Discord a little bit more, but um, they had a twenty year Discord box set, but it was mm. two years late. And I always <laughs> think, of, think of that with uh, when my, when I myself have to do work and we have deadlines, and I wonder, well, who is this deadline pleasing? You know, is right. it for the work? Is it in defense of the work or is it just to please some random person because they put that date in there? But also I remember with Mark and under the radar, like there was a couple of, um, you know, we, we set, set a protest issue for November and then it can't happen because things change. So it gets pushed. And then, so it's not quite a protest issue anymore, but it has protest stories and then things fall off and other bits come in to make it more cohesive. And it just keeps us, on our toes all the time. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. It's it's to me, it's not like you you can only handle so much adversity at any moment. And I totally get that. You should have again, a a sort of combination of comfort and challenge in your own life. But I do find that one of the great skills that I have. And the reason why I think the show has existed as long as it has is because I, every type of adversity like that, like I love trying to find the way to pivot to turn it into some kind of advantage. I am like, like the, the sort of indie business, um, Aikido that you have to do to kind of like turn whatever like force that's used against you into your strength and, and pivoting on it is like, is my favorite part of the job in a general sense. Like, and sometimes it's a business thing. Sometimes it's a creative solution. Um, sometimes it's, you know, it, I, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it'll seem really mundane, but what I love is to like what would be the greatest result of that protest issue that got pushed is it creates this new thing that you never would have anticipated that's better than you possibly could have done in the moment um, because it has some time of reflection to, to make these things that are accidental and make and do them and, and react to them so well that it seems intentional and so the, you know that's what that's what we definitely try to do with the show it's like you know we react to the news we react to um, you know, to what's going on. We react to ourselves as humans. I'm mean, humans make this show. So when something happens, like Trump gets elected, like the shows are kind of about Trump for a while, <laughs> you know, they're not they're I mean, they're not overtly, but like they're on our minds. And so when we make things about sanctuaries, 
and uh, and we tie them to sanctuary cities like we're thinking about Trump like we're humans and so like I would not want that adversity but we will pivot to to turning something you know to to, to making it into something um and and that's that's just what you have to do when you're like a creative person in the world so what the last question is what is the relationship speaking of Trump of uh doom tree to what trump 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 yeah so like this show what trump can choose about con law was just sort of like a conversation between me and and my friend who's a constitutional law uh professor and i love um, that show by the way oh thank you that's the kind of that channeling that chaos to you know to teach everybody about law is well it was to teach me honestly like i just needed it i felt i was searching for information four years ago and i couldn't and and elizabeth was providing it and uh through twitter and i was like oh this could be this could be a show and um and luckily she was just so good and so game for it i mean the doomtree connection was that you know i just knew that i i was feeling something different with the show you know like i i felt like we were um it was like an it was like an examination and it was a little bit of a stepping back of like, okay, I'm going to take like the, the, the fire and fury of the moment. I'm going to go back to constitutional law and history and go, so, okay, so what does this harken back to and where have we been here before? And it has, and it has all these like good thought in it, but there is a little bit of desperation and anger in it. And I, I knew I wanted the, the audio palette to sort of reflect that a little bit. I don't know. It was just something like, I knew it couldn't sound like 99 PI. And so I had, um, I had become friends with um, a lot of the Doomtree people like on tour and, and you know, they've been kindly just sort of said like, Oh, we listened to you in the van type of thing. And, um, and I just like wrote them and I just said, Hey, this would be really fun. Like we'll, we'll, we'll use this like Midwest hip hop, you know, to, to like when we talk about Trump and, um, and would you be into it? And they were just, they've always been so game. So they sent me, it's what the best part is like, I get like early tracks and stuff like this. I mean, this is much what, you know, like as a music journalist, you must love to, but like when you get like early music and you just have things you're a fan of, it's just like, there's nothing better. So I get, I get stems, you know, from bands, I, you know, from, from rappers I love. And, um, and so, um, so yeah, it was just always like the, I always knew I wanted the, the audio palette to be a little bit different and Doomtree just seemed kind of perfect for it, you know? So. Yeah. I went to look at the music and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, where's this connection? It just chants, you know, like, you know, I just liked it. And, and they were also a collective. They, they were, they were a huge inspiration with Radiotopia as well. Like, the, Oh really? The, They've the, been around for a while too. They have, you know, so like the branding of a collective and the whole idea of what it means, like they, they operate in a different way than we operate, but they, um, but I was uh, really intrigued by their model too. And, and so they were kind of the, so discord is like the historic example and Doomtree was the modern example that really created what Radiotopia was. I've been a fan for a really, a really long time. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay. So those are sort of all my questions. So I wanted to say thank you and um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what you come up with next, especially listening to that record that's going to come out of all the music. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Where'd you get that third coast shirt? I was at third coast last year. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I, I wear this quite a lot as an at-home T-shirt. It's actually like really works. Uh, and this I, is the love, first time someone's that. noticed it. Well, it's a pretty obscure reference. But I, I, I worked for Third Coast for a, a year, for a couple of years. And so like when I see Third Coast things, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm really aware. <laughs> You're so part of all that kind of, for uh, me. 
you know, and yeah, I don't, yeah. being from like Singapore and then coming here and then, you know, being part of this kind of culture of radio and podcasting, it's like you're a bit of a guru, but <laughs> there's, there's, there's a few of you around, but you know, sure. the fact that you've hung on and it's independent and all like really speaks to me. Thank you very much for all you do. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation. There's a link in our show notes to 99% Invisible and the new book, as well as the original published feature at Under the Radar magazine. You'll also find there a link to our Facebook group. Leave any questions you may have for me there about guests, music, or any thoughts you might have had of something you liked or didn't like. I'd love to hear from you while I work on upcoming episodes for Season 2. Before I forget, if you like this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, or better still, write us a review. It helps other people find us among the kajillion other podcasts out there. Till next time, stay safe out there.